You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. Well, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, we're going to excuse the, the children at this time uh, that are going to children's ministry, but if you want to turn in, in the Gospel of Mark, we're returning to our Follow Me series. The ushers have Bibles. Uh, if you need a Bible this morning, just slide your hand up. They would love to bring you a Bible so that you're with us. Um, but I want to start this morning, as you're turning to uh, the Gospel of Mark, start our time together by, by asking ourselves an extremely important question. Extremely important question. Even thinking of us as being a, a launch church and, and a year in, let's ask ourselves this question, what does a faithful disciple look like? What does faithful biblical discipleship look like? What's the biblical prescription and description for how we as Redemption Church are to go about making disciples of all nations for the glory of God. And even more than that, what's what's the evidence that this true discipleship is actually taking place, that that we're truly obeying our Lord when he gave us that great commission, right, to go and make disciples? Where's the evidence? Where's the evidence of true discipleship? Where is it to be found? Is it, is it to be found in the, in the quality and the excellence of our church service, right? Is it to be found in, in how we sing and, and how good our music in, is? Or what our building is like? Or what our programs, how excellent our programs are? Is that the evidence of true discipleship? Is it the size of the crowd, Is it how cool our children's area is? Or how many life-changing programs we have? Or events that we're hosting during the weeks? Friends, the world around us is trying to teach us that success is proven by having more and more and more. More money, more toys, more stuff. And I believe one of the biggest problems we have in the church at large right now is that we apply that mindset to the church. We apply that mindset to Christ's body, to his bride. And so we need to ask ourselves, what is the true evidence? What is the evidence of true discipleship? Is it more? Is it more and more and more? Or does God's word show us something else? Well, as we continue to walk Today, where's our banner? Following Christ, walking with Jesus through the gospel of of Mark. We're going to be looking at chapter 3, verses 7 to 19, picking up where we left off, because that's what we do as a church. We follow Christ, we follow the Bible, and we we preach from the beginning to the end of, of books. And what we're going to see this morning, what we're going to learn, is actually that less is more. Less is more when it comes to true discipleship. So as we witness uh, the crowds of people around Jesus Christ, we, we see his disciples who are going to become apostles, we're going to get some insight into the master's plan for our own lives, our own lives as disciples. And so through our time this morning, we're going to ask each other three questions, three questions regarding discipleship. 
Three questions regarding true biblical discipleship in our lives and in our church. So let's begin in chapter 3, verse 7. I'm going to have to turn there myself. All right. Starting in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Lord, we thank you that uh, you give us your word and you give it to us so completely. We thank you that, that uh, John Mark wrote all of this down through the power of the Spirit. As the Spirit moved him along, as he listened to the apostle Peter writing down all that Peter told him. We thank you that we have this, this evidence today, uh, this history, this testimony of, of you. We thank you that you've shown us yourself We thank you that we get to see all of this front row, what you have done. Lord, we thank you for the Gospels. Thank you for the truth. Thank you for the truth that sets us free. Lord, we thank you this morning that we get to gather. It's a privilege yet again to gather together as the Lord's people on the Lord's day in the Lord's house. We thank you for this space. We pray that you would use our time together in the word by your spirit to do your work on our hearts. Lord, we need you. We need you every hour, every minute, every second. Lord, we need you. We pray that you would do your work in us again today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, as we just read, we we arrive at this text. We see Jesus here and his disciples. Uh, We see them withdrawing to the sea. Now, the first question should be coming into to your mind as, as you look at this text is, is, why are they withdrawing to the sea? What is, what's going on here? So if you can remember a couple of weeks ago when we were studying verses uh, 1 to 8, uh, we witnessed Jesus, remember, he, heal, he healed a man with a withered hand, a man much like me, right? Uh, in plain view of all the Pharisees, and he was doing this to challenge the Pharisees on their Sabbath legalism. And in turn, the Pharisees, how did they respond? They responded with hard hearts. In fact, their their hearts grew even harder than they were towards Jesus. And in verse 6, it says that they went out 
immediately with the Herodians against Jesus. How to destroy him. These are two opposing groups of people. They usually don't collaborate together. But misery loves company, and they were starting to go after Jesus Christ. Two different authorities, government and religious, uh, going after Jesus Christ, seeing how they're going to silence him and how they are going to kill him. And then we get to our text, and we're going to look at these first three verses, four verses. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he, Jesus, told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd. Why? Lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to just touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him, and they cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So the first thing I want you to see is that on top of the pressure of the Pharisees and the Herodians wanting to kill Christ, we see massive, massive crowds, regular, everyday people like you and me coming from all over Israel, traveling hundreds of miles just to come and see something, to come and see Jesus, this miracle worker from Galilee. They're coming from all over to be healed, to be delivered, or just to witness something spectacular. And this is where we're going to get our first point from this morning. Our first applicational question about true discipleship, and it is this. When it comes to following Jesus, am I, like the crowd, merely seeking his hands? Am I merely seeking his hands? False discipleship comes only to receive. So if you remember all the way back um, to to the start of uh, the Gospel of Mark, we've seen John the Baptist in chapter 1. Remember, all those people were coming out to see him, to be baptized by him in the Jordan out in the wilderness. Chapter 1, verse 5 says, All the country of Judea and Jerusalem were coming out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the wilderness. So John and his message of baptism and repentance was was a pretty big deal. But when you compare that to Jesus, you see people being drawn even further, from further reaches. Our text says people came from Galilee. That's where Jesus is ministering, right? Uh, Judea, uh, it's all in in the main center of, of Israel, and Jerusalem is at the corner of that, Jerusalem. But we even see people as far as Idumea. That's 150 miles straight south. And that was an area that was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And then it says people coming from beyond the Jordan. And that's basically anything east of the Jordan River all the way to the Euphrates. That's a huge section of land. And then it also says from Tyre and Sidon, which would be 50 miles north of Capernaum. And up there was mostly Gentile people. And so it's people from from all over. Jesus' fame knows no boundaries or distance. It knows no race. It knows no culture. It is the greatest awesome news that has hit the planet. But the problem, the problem is that he's becoming known 
for something that he does not want to be primarily known as. They are looking for a miracle worker. And yes, he is. And yes, he loves. He loves to work miracles and heals in his passion. But he's being known for that. Verse 10 shows us that this menacing crowd was coming because, it says four, because he healed many. So that all who had diseases pressed, pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. So yes, we know Jesus had great compassion for his people. He wanted to heal them all. But the pressing crowd was becoming more of an impedance, more of a hindrance to his ministry, to his message, rather than a help. Remember back in, in Mark 1.38, he, he was already struggling with the crowds. The crowds wanted more healing. They said to his disciples, or Jesus said to his disciples, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. Jesus knew Many needed to be healed, but yet he said, I need to go and preach. That is why I came out. He knows that what they need is not temporary relief. Not the temporal relief of the fallen effects of this world, but what they need is everlasting salvation that leads to life. And he knows that only comes through what? That comes through his teaching comes through the word of God. It comes through preaching. But they weren't interested in the words of his mouth. They were more interested in what he could do for them. They wanted relief from their illness. They wanted restored health. They wanted their limbs to grow back. They wanted eyes to be opened. They wanted leprous sores to disappear. They wanted demons to be delivered. And these were all good things. And they came in droves. Great crowds pressing, pressing, pressing in. In verse 9, he feared that they would crush them. And so he got disciples, his disciples, to get a boat so that they could get away. It's pretty bad when you have to get a boat to escape the crowd. Like that is a massive crowd that you need to get out into the water and escape these people. And so what we see here, friends, is that this massive crowd... All they had was a desire to receive. They were only looking to get something. They were only there to see something amazing. And this is not the kind of disciples that Jesus was looking for. They were pursuing him for all the wrong reasons. They were completely missing the point of who he was because they were merely looking at his hands. So false discipleship comes only to receive, only to get something. And so we need to ask ourselves today, are we wanting only what his hands can bring? Or do we want true discipleship? True discipleship. And so we need to ask ourselves, am I, like the massive crowds, merely seeking Jesus for what he can give me, for what he can do for me? Are you following Christ primarily for what he can give are we merely seeking his hands? And so by the testimony of, of how Jesus reacts to the crowds, we see that he is repelled by them rather than compelled by them. 
And so they get in a boat. Now I believe this same mindset is, is well and alive in our world today. We live in a world that is all about me. It's all about I. What can I get? What can I receive? Our fallen nature loves ourselves. We want to get more and more. We want more for ourselves. But what's more concerning is that is even prevalent in the church at large. In many ways, massive crowds, there's massive crowds still following with quotations just for what they think they can get out of Jesus Christ. There's millions of churchgoers across the world. They are attracted to the fantastic, the spectacular, the show, the miraculous, seeking to be blessed, seeking to receive, wanting more, and even wanting heaven now. I'll just read some of the titles of their books. It's your time. Ignite your faith. Accomplish your dreams. Increase in God's favor. Your best life now. The power to release your inborn drive. Every day's a Friday. Seven steps to happiness. Ignite God's vision for your life. Prosperity, miracles, health, wealth, and on and on and on. Thousands of books feeding our natural desire to want to get something, to see something more, to see something spectacular. And it sells like wildfire. And crowds and crowds of people are following this and they are blinded by it. Church buildings across our planet are full, full of people seeking merely to receive and proving themselves to be false disciples. In fact, Jesus has long left some of those churches if he was ever there at all. Just, just because a building is full doesn't mean that there's true discipleship there. Matthew seven thirteen: for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are, how many? Many. Just because it seems spectacular and miraculous and things are going on doesn't mean that true discipleship is taking place. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now this may not be our problem here. But in different ways, we need to watch ourselves as well. We need to ask ourselves the question, when it comes to following Christ, being a part of his body, being a part of his church, are we merely gazing at Jesus' hands? Are we, are we coming merely to receive? One way that we can test that is by looking at our prayers. How much of our prayer life is, is consumed with asking? Don't get me wrong. We, we're called to ask God for everything. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, it will be opened to you. James says, you have not because you ask not. So we definitely ask him for his hand in our life. But the problem is, is that we often only focus on the asking. We forget about the repenting. 
We don't spend much time confessing. And then that time of adoration in prayer, worshiping Him in prayer. So take a look at your prayers and see where your heart is. We're taking a consumer mindset and applying it to our faith in the church. Do we treat Jesus like a menu rather than a meal? A means to get something. I like this. I don't like that. I love that music. I don't like this music. That building is nice. I don't know about this building. The programs, I don't know. I like that program. Or maybe you're coming because you want your kids to be obedient. Maybe you want your husband to be fixed or your wife to be fixed. Maybe you want your marriage to be better. I want success. I want happiness. And on and on and on. Do we primarily come for the stuff? Do we primarily come for the byproduct? Now, these things are all good. The byproducts of faith are extremely good. Don't get me wrong, but, but if we make those things the end game, we're missing the complete point. We're here for him. Think of it like this. If you're married and you only love your spouse for what they can do for you, that's not real love. Or if your child only shows you affection to get some kind of new toy or, or device, or you have friends that only come around to use your stuff, this is what Christ is dealing with, with these people, and he is repelled by them. They don't want him. They don't want his words. And so we can apply this in, in so many ways, and I'm sure you can think of many ways in your life this morning, but it's so good for us to examine ourselves, asking ourselves the question, am I like the crowd? Merely seeking his hands. False discipleship comes only to receive. And so we see these crowds pressing in, they're seeking the healing, and as unclean spirits are, are falling down before him, they're further bringing attention to him. They know that he is the king of the universe. And they know that he's coming to destroy him. They are coming out and they are crying out, you are the son of God. There's so much commotion going on. Jesus has to leave. Jesus takes his disciples and he leaves. He leaves the menacing frenzy. And in verses 13 to 21, we see he goes up a mountain. He went up the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. Point number two, am I humbly seeking his face? True discipleship abides in his presence. So as we've already studied in Mark and through the Gospels, Jesus would often get away. He would get alone to spend time with his Father in prayer. In fact, when you look at this same account in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 13, it says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Anybody ever pray all night? Didn't think so. All night he continued to pray to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. So we see that Mark is, is not showing this, but Luke shows us that. After a night of praying all night, seeking his Father's will, Jesus is now coming down to take his disciples up the mountain, away from the crowds, away from the masses, away from the frenzy, 
And I love this. It says, he's coming and he takes those whom he desired. Those whom he desired. And what did they do? They came to him to be with him. We need to stop there for a moment. This statement is very significant when it comes to true discipleship. First, it shows us that Jesus desires followers who are not mere followers, but those who will follow him wherever he goes, those who hear his words and obey, who come not just for their needs, and this is key, but those who come to be with him, to be with him. Jesus is not about popularity. He cares less about the numbers than you think. What he desires for you is true, abiding relationship. He calls those whom he desires into his abiding presence in order to have relationship, to have communion. And then he appoints them as apostles, which means sent ones, ambassadors, representatives, to be with him by his side, to be in close proximity. He's more concerned with intimate devotion than distant infatuation. He wants to go narrow and deep rather than wide and shallow. And so he pours himself into the few. True discipleship abides in his presence. We also see that uh, being a, a disciple here means that you respond to his call. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they what? They follow me. These are his true disciples, not the goats in the herd, but the sheep. Obediently responding to the shepherd's call, seeking his face, listening to him and responding to his message, learning from him, leaving everything behind. We already seen that, right? Fishermen leaving everything behind, their whole family legacy, their business, and following Jesus Christ. And they came not only for the miracles and the incredible displays of authority and power, they came to be with him. He calls them, they came, and they abide. Love that. And so ask yourself, am I, am I? Obeying the calling. Am I coming? Am I abiding? Am I humbly seeking his face? True discipleship abides in his presence. So we see here like major contrast going on. This, so we have this great menacing crowd seeking only to receive, and then we have the few that Jesus desires. Those who want to be with him in his presence. And so as you and I are asking ourselves about true discipleship, we see that Christ desires these few and that his approach is centered on having them in his presence, being with him. And so today, when it comes to true discipleship, this has not changed. This is the same way that Jesus disciples and we disciple. We need to take these same principles and apply them to ourselves. So first, what we need to do is to look in the mirror and examine our response to his calling. His calling us out of the crowds to himself. Now we're not apostles, but we are disciples. 
Are we responding to that call, following him so closely that we begin to pick up what he's laying down? Do you believe in him enough to turn away from the trappings of the world? Young people in this room, the world is so tempting, especially for you at your age. It's promising you so much, but those promises are empty. Turn from that world. Those trappings will trap you. Are you willing to believe in him enough to turn away from all of that? Turn away from your sin. Turn away from temptation. Turn to him in faith. Or do we say that we follow him, but yet the affections of our heart says something else? What kind of things are we chasing in this world? What kind of things are getting in the way of fully committing to him? What kind of things are coming between you and being red hot for your Lord? fully on fire for him. When I think about that, I think of my own life. As an adult coming to a place of understanding that I'm trying to be in both worlds, and I can't. It's impossible. Revelation 3.16. Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. There's no middle ground. There's no fence sitting. You're either in or you're not. And so ask yourself, are you still holding on to old vices that steal your joy, steal away your affections from Christ? Are these idols keeping you from truly surrendering to the cross? Hmm. Secondly, as the text says, they came to him. Are you actively pursuing a life of intimate devotion to him? Are you using the tools that he has left behind, the means of grace, his voice, his words, his perfect and sure words in his Bible? Are you seeking the scriptures like gold, like silver, like honey dripping from the honeycomb? Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so are you seeking his ear as well in fervent prayer? Are you walking in the spirit? Is God producing fruit in you? Is he changing your life? Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. So are you seeking his face? Seeking him as your precious Lord and Savior. Abiding in his presence. Like these disciples. Are you beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other? That's his plan. That's his desire for you. So don't look at your personal devos or your quiet time as just a checkbox. Look at it as being with him. Seeking him. Loving him. Who here loves to spend time with people that they love? Right? We just had Christmas. I'm sure a lot of us spent a lot of time with the people that we love. Spending time laughing, spending time hanging out, spending time learning and enjoying one another. 
We need to enjoy Jesus. Enjoy Jesus. That's what I love about the Habits of Grace study that the ladies are doing. It's not just about spiritual disciplines for a checkbox. The point is enjoying Jesus. Being with him. Our time with Jesus should be the highlight of our day. The highlight of our life. He is everything. Now I know some mornings and evenings you see that Bible on your nightstand or you see it on the coffee table and it just doesn't seem to draw you in, right? Maybe life is throwing you all kinds of curveballs and the last thing you want to do is to open it up. Maybe when it comes to prayer, maybe you feel such distance between you and God. Friends, don't believe that. That is a lie. That is a lie from your flesh. That is a lie from Satan. If you are his, he is near. And he is near to the brokenhearted. Abiding in Christ. Why do we do this? It's the best relationship you could ever have. If everything else fails, Christ never fails. Because he's real. He's real. He is always ready to hear from you. His spirit is always there. He is always with you. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He's always ready for intimate fellowship. So like the disciples who come to him, to be with him. Give yourself to him all the more. Seek him as your best friend and Lord. Yes, reverence, but also your intimate friend. So ask yourself, am I humbling? Am I humbly seeking his face? True discipleship abides in his presence. Now as we continue, we'll see that the few that Jesus just called, they, they were just ordinary men. They were nothing special. Remember that. They weren't scholars. They weren't rabbis. They, were, they weren't Pharisees. They, they, weren't, they weren't scribes. Who were they? They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. If this took place in, in our day in Alberta, the disciples would probably have been rig workers, Electricians, I see Tim here, electrician. They would have been plumbers. Everyday Joes. You think of even Matthew. Remember, he was a, he was a dirty tax collector. What would that equivalent be today? He was hated. He was the lowest of the low. What kind of guy would that be? But that's the truth of what God does. He chooses the lowly. He chooses the lowly so that we don't boast in ourselves. We boast in him. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 28. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and what is despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. That's how he works. These 12 disciples, they were made into apostles. In fact, the language here actually harkens back to creation. Think of Jesus, the creator, making the earth. Same word is being used here for him, making them apostles. They're just ordinary men. They did extraordinary things. So they were just like ordinary like you and me. Yes, we're not apostles, right? 
That was for that time. That was for that place. But we are disciples because they were also disciples as well. And, and when you look at yourself in this room, remember that you are the few. If you are his, you are the few. And so that leads us to our point number three. Am I faithfully following his feet? True discipleship calls the ordinary to do the extraordinary. Am I following his feet? True discipleship calls the ordinary to do the extraordinary. Mark 3, verses 14 to 15. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So this is the first time we see in Mark, we really see this word apostle in the gospel. In its noun form, it means sent ones, literally sent ones. But then if you look at verse 14, you see that phrase there, it says, send them out. Well, it's the same word in its verb form. Send them out. So it's not only a title, it is an action, and that's who we are. James Edwards, a um, commentator, says, apostleship is thus a matter of being and being sent. Of one who is in relationship to Jesus and of, and of what one does as a result of that relationship, okay? It's who you are and it's what you do. So these ordinary men like you and me, they're going to be extremely important for the rest of Christ's story and the rest of um, the early uh, history of the church we see in Scripture, right? We see these guys being selected from the masses, uh, these, uh, these apostles, 12 of them. We know that it's also minus one because Judas is named here as well. They started on pretty shaky ground. But in the power of the Holy Spirit being transformed in Christ's presence, they are the ones that go to the ends of the known world with the gospel. They go from ordinary to extraordinary, faithfully following the feet of Christ. Not only are they companions and students, Jesus, his plan is to make them into so much more. To take them from here and to take them there to where they need to be. To train them in his ways, to fill them with his spirit, and to do extraordinary things for the glory of God. First, they're being sent ones. Sent to do what? Well, Jesus sends them to preach, Caruso which means to herald the truth, herald the news of the king. Preaching is not just whispering. Preaching is standing in the street, heralding the, the arrival of the king. That's what they're called to do. That's what we're called to do. And they're also called here to carry on his miraculous works. Why? Why were they to carry on his miraculous works? Well, it's to affirm the message that they're sharing. It's the same with Jesus. The works he was doing were temporary, meant to affirm the message that he was sharing. And then it says that they had authority to cast out demons. And Matthew's gospel adds that they were given the power to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Matthew 10.1. So these apostles end up becoming the real deal. Through their ministry, the Holy Spirit would heal the lame, would raise the dead, would cast out demons. Christ gave them apostolic authority so that the world would believe that their message is from him. Why? So that that massive crowd 
that is seeking his hands would turn, would turn from their wanting to receive and would turn to Christ Jesus and see him as Lord. This is how Jesus tackles the masses. That's how he did it. Day one, that was his plan. From the, from the very beginning, Jesus' plan to reach the masses is not just through him and his preaching, but through his disciples, through the few. This multiplication. And so he does that with us as well. Using the ordinary. You guys are pretty ordinary looking people up there, by the way. But God has called you to do extraordinary things for his namesake. So let's look at these guys and, have a, and just get some insight into their life. Simon. Simon comes up here first. Uh, it says, to whom he gave the name Peter. Again, some creation language here. Jesus selecting a man, making him an apostle, naming him. So Simon is named first in this list. He's, he's always named first in the list of the apostles as he was the spokesman of the 12. Sometimes speaking without thinking, right? Sometimes getting himself in trouble, but over time and over experience and abiding with Christ, he becomes Petros. He becomes the rock, the lead apostle, the one who, who would write two epistles and the one that, that's, that's behind this book of Mark. John Mark wrote down what Peter was telling him. And history tells us about his life and about his death. Tradition says that, that Peter was crucified upside down. He felt unworthy to be crucified in the same manner of his Lord. And then we have James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges. This is sons of thunder. These two brothers were, were sometimes judgmental and hot-headed. They wanted to call fire down from heaven on some people. Jesus knew them intimately enough, and he gave them this nickname to remind them to remind them of their temptation and their sin and what they were prone to. History tells us that uh, James was beheaded by Herod Agrippa and his brother John. Well, John lived to the ripe old age, some think of 100 years old, uh, but he wrote five books in the New Testament. Then we have Andrew, the brother of, of Simon. Andrew was a diligent disciple often bringing people to Jesus and bringing people to his brother Peter. Tradition says that he was crucified on an X-shaped cross, preaching the gospel for two days as he was dying on that cross. Matthew was a tax collector. This should just remind us of ourselves, right? We are the worst of sinners. He writes the gospel of Matthew and then the rest, we've got Philip, we've got Bartholomew, we've got Doubting Thomas, we've got James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot. He's some kind of a religious mercenary, right? Quite a club of men to begin with. And then we have Judas, the one that Jesus knew all along would betray him, but in his sovereignty used him to, to the very end, selling him for silver. These men started out pretty insignificant, right? But through their selection and through their training, through the Spirit dwelling within them and abiding, abiding, being with Jesus, they are changed. And God supernaturally uses them to do extraordinary things. He wants to do the same with us. 
We may think that we're ordinary. What can I do for the kingdom of God? God has a plan for you to do extraordinary things, greater things he will do through you. He wants to reach the world through you. He wants to reach your children through you, your parents through you, your neighbor through you. Nobody else. He's called you to do that. Your neighborhood is closer to coming to know Jesus Christ because you live there. Nobody else is there to do that. It's extraordinary. A ramshackle crew of men. We also know later Paul is going to come as another apostle as well. And because of these men, we have the surefire word in our hands, this, this, these pages of this Bible. I want you to see these pages as soaked in blood, soaked in sweat, soaked in tears. They died for you to have it. They wrote it through the power of the Spirit. So we're not apostles, right? Apostles were for that time. They were special, but we are disciples. And so we as disciples, yes, we are imperfect, but we need to abide and we need to follow. We, like them, were, are fallen. We are foolish in and of ourselves. We can do nothing great for God, but God's plan today is still to use you despite yourself. Despite yourself. Despite your ordinariness to do extraordinary things. It's true. We're not talking about miracles. We're not talking about apostolic power. We're talking about following Jesus closely, serving him, heralding his truth to the end of the world, watching God do amazing things through us. So true discipleship starts small. It starts small. It's getting close to Jesus. It's getting close to one another. It's pushing into one another's life. Yes, friendship. Yes, having fun, but also sanctifying relationship as well. Discipling one another. As one leads just a few, those few turn around and lead another few, and those few turn around and lead another few. That's, that's God's plan from the very beginning. This is true discipleship. So we trust the plan. We commit to the plan. We engage his plan in the power of the Holy Spirit, motivated by God's gospel, because of his grace, and we seek it. So we close by asking ourselves these questions again. Am I merely seeking his hands? False discipleship comes only to receive. Am I humbly seeking his face? True discipleship abides in his presence. Am I faithfully following his feet? True discipleship calls the ordinary to do the extraordinary. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks clearly. It speaks urgently. Um, not a lot of deciphering going on here this morning. This is very clear. Um, are we in the crowd? Or are we of the few? Lord, we thank you that by your grace you call us. That you have called us into your abiding presence. And Lord, we ask ourselves, have I come? Am I there? Have I turned from my life? Have I turned from my sin? Have I trusted in you alone for salvation? Today is the day of salvation. And Lord, I pray that if there's someone here who doesn't truly know you or isn't sure, that today would be a new day for them. Uh, that you would, uh, by your grace, draw them, call them, and that they would come. And that they would discover the joy of being abiding in your presence forever. Do your work on us as a church. We thank you for this, this year 
since we launched. We thank you for what you're doing. We thank you that you've placed us right here. And we ask you to use us and help us to keep true discipleship at the center of what we're doing and how that works itself out into our small groups, into our families, into our church, in all that we do, keeping you at the center, abiding in you, turning around and sharing that with the few. Lord, we thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray.